Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is Erin Smith. Erin Smith has been on my channel before. Uh, she is a journalist and an entrepreneur, and she recently, just the last couple of weeks, went into Ukraine to deliver medical supplies. In this conversation, we speak about that entire adventure. Very enlightening stuff. The conflict is very real and a lot more complex than social media would have us believe. So without further ado, here is Aaron Smith. Oh, man. Whew. It's good to chat with you again. Thank yeah. you for having me back on. No, thank you for reaching out. Let me know what, what's going on. Yeah, I um, literally just got out of Ukraine a few hours ago. Um, I when the whole war started, um, like many people watching on here, of course, I was enraptured by everything. Um, and well, I, it turns out, you know, I have some friends here and they started reaching out to our friends group um, saying like, hey, you know, we need some some stuff. We need medical supplies and stuff like that. Like I've got um, the primary one I talked to was one of my American friends who's actually He's living um, west of uh, Lviv, not far from the um, the strike that just happened, the one that happened a few days ago, mm -hmm. the airstrike in y Yavorov. He's He wasn't too far from there. Um, and, yeah, he's like, you know, he's American. He's had, got medical training. He's an Army vet. He's like, we need medical supplies. Stat. Like, this is within the first few days of the war happening. And, and basically, you know, like there, there's there's lots of I mean the Ukrainians are fighting really hard but of course in those first few days of war you don't know what's going to happen how long it's going to last there was a lot of concern about I mean there were some some and there still are there still are some Russian uh, spy teams and like recon teams that are moving around on the west side of the country so everything's really tense but there there wasn't really um, there, there was some question about whether or not there's going to be like another Belarusian front that came down to attack from the north. So everyone's digging in in the villages around there, expecting, you know, a Russian or Belarusian attack at any minute. And they're like, we are like so out of medical supplies. Can you get us anything? Because the stuff we have is going to the front, you know, in the east. And they're like, can you get us anything here? And I was like, well, okay, let me see what I can do. So I'm like, God, holy shit, I'm going, it looks like I'm going to Ukraine. Because, you know, they cut down, they shut off the air and, you know, air flights in. Um, so I'm like, God, I guess I'm going to have to hand carry this stuff into Ukraine now. So we basically hit the ground running. I did some fundraising. Um, I got in touch with some some medical company. And it's really interesting, too. It's very complicated because so many of these companies, they're, they are being bought out, too, because they're sending stuff. Like the State Department just made a huge order with one company I usually do well, deal with a lot. And so, yeah, I found this guy, a tactical medic in Mesa, Arizona, Sean, really awesome guy. Had a bunch of supplies. Um, he had some stuff that was getting right up to the expiration date, so he gave me a huge deal on that. I got some other very specialized equipment. Like I got, um, I had like three hundred something Israeli bandages. Like I had like three huge bags of stuff. Uh, I even got like field trans blood transfusion kits, which honestly I'd never seen these before, but they're pretty cool. They're these kits that you can like literally, if you have to put blood in someone, you can do it in the field because they have like blood typing cards, and you can like figure out a blood type really quick and like literally jab someone in the field and jab someone else and pump blood into them. It's wild stuff. So I was getting a lot of that. Lots of very, um, you know, 
not just first aid trauma stuff but we're getting a lot of uh field hospital gear a little bit more advanced surgical gear too so i had so much stuff that i was getting it for my friend and also um because he was helping set up a field hospital and i had so much stuff that we also talked to uh the local garrison church in lviv and to deliver to them to send directly to the front lines as well so anyway i i, I got all this stuff and i packed three big bags of, of all these things um and <laughs> get a ticket and fly to Warsaw. And I actually talked um, to a couple of journalist friends of mine in a talk. They were thinking about going. It's really kind of interesting because there's a groups of people who were thinking about going. They didn't quite have that impetus to go. You know, it was like they were kind of, I, I need to go report. Or I need to go do something here. And it, we all kind of like prodded each other to go, you know, like once I was like, hey, I'm going, I'm taking medical gear. A bunch of other people that were thinking about it writers and other people that were talking, you know, reporters decided to go as well. So a bunch of us kind of met up in Warsaw and it, it was, it was kind of a mess because I had to wait two days in Warsaw. I decided because I'm going into a war zone, I don't know what to expect. Um, so I made sure to get my ticket pretty wide gap. You know, I'm like, I'm going to get to Warsaw, give myself a week and a half to get in. If I can help in some way, help if I can do some writing and reporting. Um, and they're giving me time too. Cause I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get out too. like, this is a war zone. Everyone's like walking across the border. Um, so there was a lot of that. Thankfully it worked out because I had to wait two days for them to get my bag to me. Cause one of my bags with a lot of the specialized medical gear got lost in Amsterdam. So, you know, I had to, I got there and I'm like crap. So I'm like yelling at these people like every six hours, like you need to get this bag to me ASAP because I'm going into Ukraine and I, and this is important. So they finally got it to me on the Tuesday. I got, I got in when well, no, I got in Saturday um, and it got to me that Monday evening. So we left out first thing Tuesday morning. So, you know, again, it's like, and this is really the, the thing about a war zone because everything is broken. It's basically like the damage kind of ripples out from the combat and every all the systems of the country just start failing and nothing's working properly. Mm -hmm. And it's also, especially because it's in a different language, the local stuff, all the all the changes, they're hard to keep up with because you know the the information that's being disseminated is being disseminated in a different language. So you've got to get there and when you try to Google it, it doesn't really tell you very much about what where do the changes are, how do you get in. Because that's not something people really need to know in another language. It's the stuff that's being written about and disseminated in the local language. So the Google searches don't really help you very much. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you have to kind of get there and start figuring out what you're going to do. Like, we, you, we were trying to get a train to Lviv. I was like, I think the train's shut down directly. Because usually there's a train that goes straight to it. And you just, you know, do show your passport at the border and you go straight in. Well, you know, we got there, and obviously that didn't work. There's no train. Yeah. There's supposed to be a bus as well. Like, you can actually go buy the, You can still buy the bus tickets online to take the bus to Lviv, but there's no bus to Lviv. So it's like, oh, then you show up, and like, oh, there's buses are canceled. So what I had to do was, and not all the borders, not all the borders except people walking across. Um, well, they all, well, almost all of them, except people walking out of Ukraine, there's only a handful that allow people to walk into Ukraine because, you know, there's only, there's so many people leaving. So they have to kind of, you know, be very, uh, specific with how they distribute their border guards. 
So we hop on the train at Warsaw, um, and we go to this town called um, Primashil, which is like 10 miles from the Ukrainian border, and it is a madhouse when you get there. It is just slam-packed with people. The um, entire downtown square is just a mob. So you get off the you know train, and I'm dragging three big bags that I've flown across, you know, to through Europe and into Warsaw with like 150 pounds of stuff. Um, so I'm dragging this stuff, these mob of people, and I have to basically find a taxi. I'm like, I need to cross the border. Can you get me there? I'm like throwing like Zlotys at this guy. Like, I don't care. Just get me as close to the border as you can because I'm walking across. So he finally gets me there, and it's like another madhouse. Like, it's just, you know, it, it, it looks like a movie set. Like it's, it was crazy. Like all the tents everywhere, just mobs of people. There's all the cameras, the media is everywhere. Um, yeah. And I get there and I actually start walking in and, uh, uh, I like, I'm dragging these bags. It's like a quarter mile and I get, and then I get through the, the European union stamped out part and I get to the Ukrainian side and this is where it kind of gets kind of crazy because I've never been to Eastern Europe. And, like, let's be honest about my situation. You know, this is a very trad place I'm going, and I'm a trans person. And, you know, I never really got around to updating my passport. So <laughs> I'm like, you know, so I kind of butched up a bit. You know, I'm like, you know, that was kind of the thing that was worrying me. I was like, I'm going to pull my hair back, throw some baggy clothes on. And just try to, like, bullshit my way in. Like, I figured I'm carrying all this stuff to help them. Surely I'll get some slack. Well, you know, and, you know, they, they're, I go in there, and the lady at the password control is a little cool at first. And she's like, well, you know, I, she has to get someone else to translate for me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm bringing this medical stuff. And, you know, I'm also coming to do some portings. She has me stand aside. And, you know, then some more Americans come in. And these are guys that were going to the Legion. Um, to fight, and they had to stand aside too. So then some soldiers show up, and they take us like to this, you know, customs house on the other side of the road. And this is where it gets kind of awkward. Um, I had like a squad of Ukrainian soldiers take me into like a back room, and they're like giving me the. It was like the interrogation scene, like in the in the film noir type, you know, the private detective type films. It was pretty pretty intense i mean mm. and you know they're like what are you doing who are you what do you you know and then they like pull my passport out and they're like are you man or woman and i'm like oh fuck this is gonna get messy i'm like well um you know i'm like well hey look i i'm here to help and i like i pull my bag open and i start throwing medical gear at these guys i'm like yeah. i'm here to help you like i'm here to that's what i'm doing like here's medical gear i like gave these guys like a dozen israeli bandages they're like do you have any tourniquets? You know, I'm like, yeah, I got tons of tourniquets. So I'm pulling them out. I'm handing these out to these guys. And, you know, yeah, look, you know, if you, if you don't believe me, like what I'm doing, I look at all this stuff here. I was like, you can call, you know, Father Roman at the, at the military garrison church, at the military chaplain. And then the guy in charge, like, kind of got a little bashful. and goes, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my chaplain. That's, that's, that's my, my, my priest. It's a Greek Catholic church. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. He's like, "Hey, welcome to Ukraine. Welcome to Ukraine. Like, pack your bags. You're good to go." And and at that point, I was like, "Okay," because it was it was pretty tense for about probably thirty minutes. Yeah, and then he turned into Tranta Claus. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like tranny claws. Like I'm like, hey, I'm like going through Ukraine, like just giving out medical gear to soldiers, and and they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's it's good. I'm not gonna ask, you know. But like I'm not gonna look a, a a gift horse in the mouth here. So, but uh, yeah, it was basically a, an Eastern European shakedown. You know, they're like, wow. you know, because they needed medical gear that bad, and like. I wasn't offended really because like the whole point of me coming was to bring medical gear to soldiers. So if soldiers kind of want to shake me down for medical gear when I'm coming into the country. I mean, that's, that's kind of shortens my job, so to speak. I'm giving it directly to the people. So mm. yeah, it was, it was pretty uh, nerve wracking there for a little bit. So, and, and, and then to be honest, when I went back in and the lady at passport control, the soldiers took me back there and they're like, thumbs up, you know, good to go. And the lady, like, the lady who was at passport control, she, like, stamped my passport, like, gave me this big smile and, like, gave me, like, started just shaking my hand. She's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. She was a little cool at first, you know, but then once it was everything was good to go, she was just, like, huge grin, so happy, um, waving me right in the country. And at that point, I was, I actually had a ride waiting for me uh, down the road in Mastika. And this is um, probably, like, six or seven miles from where I was um, from the border. So I'm like, how am I going to get this distance covered? Um, there were buses kind of running through. I, I'd heard a rumor that there were buses leaving um, from that area and shuttling people. Because, again, the thing is, it's a traffic jam. There's like a, a six-mile-long car jam of people trying to get out. There is like – you may, I think you saw the Twitter video I posted of people walking out. It's just, you know, a wall of people. And so I'm like – I walk out, and the first thing I see is there's like a Legion tent. You're like, well, hey, soldiers, welcome to the Legion. Well, I'm not, you know, coming to join the Legion, but I like pop in there. I'm like, hey, folks, I'm going to um, here bringing medical gear. It's like I try to offer them stuff. They're like, oh, no, thanks. We're good. We, we're, we have plenty. But uh, I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to meet a ride in Mystica. I'm taking medical gear into the country to pass off to people. And they end up hooking me up with a ride. Like, they sat me down. Like, get in here, get in here, get, because it was so freaking cold. I was, like, freezing my ass off. And, yeah, they sit me down, and, like, they give me this hot, sweet tea. It was so good. And they're feeding me scones, and they're just being, like, so, like, welcoming. And one of the legionnaires, his wife, pulls up in a van, and, like, they load my bags up for me. And they're like, yeah, we got you. We got you. You're taken care of. So they run me. They shuttle me, like, six miles down the road. We meet my my ride and throw the bags in there and... Yeah, go ahead. One, one question. Um, what is this legion? Could you just explain that? Just the legion. Bit? Yeah. These are the, um, you know, Ukraine is accepting foreign fighters, um, like for like people that are predominantly, if you have military experience, they'll, ex- that's kind of, they'll go to the front of the line. I mean, there's been some question about who they're accepting, but basically it's the, the Ukrainian foreign legion. It's, you know, if you are not a Ukrainian and you wish to fight in the current current conflict, yeah. they're allowing people to join into their foreign legion if they wish. So that's who was meeting me there. Oh, not, I'm sorry, that, that wasn't who was meeting me, but that's who the people that I saw and I talked and to give me a ride. Um, yeah, and, and they're pretty good dudes. There's a lot of, you know, there was Americans, um, there was like two British people, there was a British guy and an American guy that walked in with me. And we were kind of chatting a little bit, but, um, yeah, that, that's who that is. And anyway, I got there, met my ride, we went to town and it was like, 
nice to be able to like sit back and take a deep breath and just, you know, I got through this, you know, and I'm in the country and there are roadblocks everywhere. Like the entire country has got soldiers and like the thing is they have territorial defense people, which is pretty interesting because they actually, they're kind of like sort of the National Guard, but they're more like a state guard militia type thing. And it's generally like a lot of the men in the neighborhood that have been, you know, conscripted into this territorial defense. And it's pretty cool because they have like geographical, um, you know, they're within a geographical range, like their their neighborhood, like their area, like their town and stuff, which is pretty interesting because it gives them a big advantage. Like the ones that are actually fighting the Russians, like they know their town, they can tear the signs down and they're from there. So they know where they're going. They know all the little all the little, you know, ditches and hollers they can hide in. And plus, they have this very, uh, this loyalty to their town, and they fight really hard. Even though they may not be necessarily as well-trained or as disciplined as a lot of the um, soldiers, they have that, like, real fighting spirit and that local knowledge and, you know, that attachment to their community that really helps make up for some of that. But it's also kind of... uh, it's a little scary because, like, a lot of these guys are having like, itchy trigger fingers. Because, again, it's their home, you know, and, like, some of these places have very sensitive installations. So, you know, you're just, like, driving slow and pulling up here and, like, not you're not taking photos because they get super worked up if you're taking pictures of that. Um, you know, they may want to see passports and stuff, but generally they're polite. You know, they're generally most everyone in the country is really polite. But everyone's on edge because they're being invaded by Russia. And there's spy teams running around doing recon missions russian recon teams so you want to be really careful and just don't do anything super crazy so we get to lviv and you know i've got some places to stay there with friends um end up passing off um some of the a lot of the year to the military church to distribute through their supply chains um i started giving other stuff out to soldiers but it was about a week there of traveling around and interviewing people and getting kind of a local uh, local feel for how the country's doing. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about going deeper into the country. Uh, I kind of decided not to because it was, you know, the, the situation, um, it, it's like a hurricane. And I keep going back to it. It's, if you've ever been on the coast somewhere and there's been hit by a hurricane, you would kind of understand the, the feeling that happens, like as far as the infrastructure and the ability to, um, you know, the roads and how people travel on it and the fuel situation. It just reminded me a lot of a hurricane. Um, it's harder to move into the country because, again, there's checkpoints everywhere. Um, and you're also having to remember, too, it's like the deeper you go into the country, the harder it is to get out because people are streaming out. And you're and if you turn around, you're in that crowd and you're, you're inching along with the crowd going the other way. So it may take you you know, for whatever time it takes you to get into the country, like for every hour it takes, like it probably takes at least four hours to the other way, to, four times as much to get out, just ballpark sense, because there's not much traffic going in. There's a lot of traffic going out and you're going to have to think about that. That's something that it reminds me of, like, again, it's like a hurricane. If you wait too long to evacuate, there's a good chance you're going to be stuck because everyone's on the road. Um, but it, this is just like, it's been like a three week hurricane too, because it's like the destruction keeps moving. The, the war is happening and getting worse and more and more people are just streaming out. Um, yeah, it was, 
but you know, I think the stuff that uh, I saw, like in, in Lviv, it was wasn't too crazy. We did have a bunch of air raid sirens there. Um, we had this the airstrike in Yavorov, which is just outside of Lviv, but the town itself didn't get struck. Um, and that's kind of why I like, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, you, you see a lot of war tourists and other people like that and people that are trying to come join up and they may not have a good idea what they're doing. And you start to see that, you know, before when you're going in, you're kind of thinking, what are you going to do? And when you get there, it's like, well, the, the smart thing is I'm going to do get the information out. I can. Um it's probably best not to go deeper in the country because you're going to be more of a hindrance at that point. I don't want to get stuck there, you know? So yeah. Cool. Any, any quick questions or yeah. What are the, um, what's happening with, with the immigrants? Uh, they're just fleeing, but what's happening with them yeah. once they get out? Um, there is basically there, a lot of them are going to Poland. Uh, um, they, what's got, the feeling of Poland like, toward the these, uh, immigrants um it's pretty interesting um i think they're up to like three million total that have fled ukraine so far that's like something like six or seven percent of the population um they're only they're it's over overwhelmingly like women and children because men between 18 and 60 aren't allowed to leave and um like they're everywhere like they're um they're, they're putting them, what happens is when you come across, and this is, if you, you can actually do, you can actually take a train into Ukraine, um, but it's this 1940s train with, like, no bathrooms on it. It, like, it's just, like, smells like a stable is what I was told. But they have, they're putting um, people in Lviv on the train, and they're going to Shimashil and getting on the train that I got off and turning it around, and they're going to the Warsaw Central Station, um, or Krakow takes a lot of them too, but you go to the Warsaw Central Station, and it's filled with support aid organizations. You know, putting these people up in like a lot of the hostels. There's like refugee shelters all around Warsaw. Um, a lot of them in Krakow and just in different areas, and they're trying the best they can. But you will see, like even like one or two o'clock in the morning, Warsaw Central is packed. The train station is just packed with refugees and people sleeping on the floor. Um, and they're doing what they can, but it, it's just a mess of people. There's a lot of really good aid organizations that are feeding these people, doing what they can to house them. Um, Lviv itself is pretty crazy packed. I know there's people that are going on to Germany. Uh, I did talk to one of the people that I interviewed. She was um, from Kiev. She was an, a, a government economist from Kiev. And she went to Lviv to send her daughter to Germany. Um, but she turned around and went back to Kiev. I think it was really interesting because I would meet people in Lviv who got there and started having second thoughts. You know, there's lots of people still leaving, but these people are like, you know what? My home is back there. And they would literally turn around and go back. Uh, there was this one, there's this young man I interviewed, Yevgeny, um, who's this, you know, this Muslim, a young Muslim Ukrainian from Kharkiv. Um, he's back in Kharkiv and he sent me videos today of like the city on fire. You know, with him, like, he holds the camera up. It's like, hey, we just had this huge explosion here. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting, and it kind of feeds back into what I saw when I came in because I thought, well, it, it'll be easy to get into the country because no one's going to be going in. There was actually a lot of people going in, and it was overwhelmingly Ukrainian men. I mean, 
who are working overseas. They're like, I'm getting home. Um, I'm going to check on my family, my place. You know, these people, most of them are like working long contracts out of the country, but they're like, I'm going home, I'm checking on my family, I'm checking on my village, that I'm going to get a rifle and I'm going to go shoot Russians. Like there's just a stream of Ukrainian men going home to do that. Um, and, you know, like I said, there's lots of women coming back too. Like they're not subject to the draft, they're not subject to being forced to stay in the country, but a lot of them were coming back too to help however they could, even if they didn't necessarily want to fight or could fight, but just going back and helping, you know, their fellow refugees or helping medically or so it was really interesting, like how many people were just throwing in to go do that. And what's the common feeling about uh, odd question, but why this is happening? What, what do people think about like the geopolitics of this, the people who are being directly affected yeah. by it? It's sort of interesting. Um, well, it's, it's actually really interesting. Um, once you get out of America, I mean, we, we like to filter these conflicts through an American domestic conflict. Like we look at it like, um, you know, we, we can't think of it as a thing in and of itself that may have nothing to do with us. Uh, a lot of this stuff, you know, it, it's, it's very, um, it's a deeply complicated conflict. Um, I, I, I know that they're like Ukraine's kind of like this. Here's the whole thing. Like Lviv, for example, um, Lviv is in the Western part of Ukraine in the 20th century. It was, part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, then it was part of Poland, then it was part of the Soviet Union for a little bit of time, then it was part of the Nazi Germany, then it was part of the Soviet Union again for like 50 years, then it was Ukraine. So there's like a big mess of these ethnic conflicts and shifting borders. Um, and I think it's really, you know, the, the sense that they kept telling me was, they really think, you know, Putin's on crazy. Like, that's the, what the Ukrainians there were telling me. They think he's just gone mad. He wants to go back to um, the old Russian empire to bring back the USSR. That was kind of a pretty consistent thing that they told me. Um, and it's really, it, it's another thing that's interesting about it. You know, one of the things Putin said was, like, the Ukraine's not a real country. They're not real people. Um, they need to be Russians again. And... The eastern part of the country, the people I was meeting from the eastern part, um, I actually have another friend in Dnipro, an American friend in Dnipro of all places, which is next to the nuclear reactor that was being shelled. Um, talking with him and talking to other people, like Ukrainian is a different language from Russian. Um, like I don't, I can't speak either one, but I know like in Russian, in Ukrainian, and Polish, like the word for yes is tak, and the word in Russian for yes is like da. So you can kind of hear when you when you're hearing something you don't understand what they're saying. You'll hear occasionally which word they're using, and you can kind of figure out which language they're speaking in. And there's a mix. It's mostly Ukrainian, but you'll hear people speaking Russian, even like the local people. Um, and the thing that's that I find interesting about it is like the Eastern European Ukrainians used to have a little bit more of a Russian identity, from what I was able to understand. Like a lot of them are like ethnically Russian. Or, ha or have had family across the border in Russia. Um, like, for example, the eastern part of Ukraine was added onto, was actually originally part of Russia. It was added onto Ukraine in like 1922, which I, I have kind of, I haven't seen anything specifically said about it. It is a centennial year for the eastern part of Ukraine to having been added to, um, to Ukraine, which I don't know, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe it's not. 
But, you know, if you look at the Ukrainian opinion over time, it appears like they're becoming more and more of a, a pro-Ukrainian, more and more Ukrainian independence and, uh, and Ukrainian nationalism has basically been rising. So the ironic thing that, to me, it seems, it seems that Putin has actually created the thing that he said he's really worried about. Like, he doesn't want Ukrainian separatism. He doesn't want a Ukrainian identity. But it's like attacking them like this seems to have forged them into the people who were on the bubble about like, hey, let's, you know, we're Ukrainian, but Russian Russia's okay. I've got family there. Now everyone's kind of like, screw Russia, you know, go Ukraine. You know, it seems like he's actually created the thing he was worried about. And, and that's really the thing. It's like, it's a super complicated situation because this goes back for a long time mm-hmm. of Ukraine being like the breadbasket of Russia and this very, it's in this place where it's tucked right along, you know, the, the Russian mythology of Kiev being the, the um, origin of the Russian empire. So it's this situation of something that's very deep and mythological in the Russian mindset, it seems to be. Um, and that's what I, I kind of get why, why Putin did what he did talking to the Ukrainians um, is it's just, that's kind of the deal. So. I hope that makes some sense. It's it's very complicated. I'm not. Yeah, I've been reading and like talking to so many people on it and getting their on the ground, um, you know, input. And it's just a lot to take in because it's Eastern Europe. These are things that go back a hundred hundreds of years. So yeah. And what is the general sense, or do you have any anecdotes of the Ukrainians' feelings towards the individual Russian soldiers? Is there kind of mixed feelings about that? It's one thing to have an opinion on what Putin's doing, but it's another thing. It's like he's using people who are kind of very related to the Ukrainians. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. A lot of the, uh, some of the military districts, again, some of the ones that border um, Ukraine are, you know, people, especially on the, on the east, you may have people that are, it's kind of like the American Civil War of like families that are almost split. Not maybe not quite the exact same because, but maybe more like cousins and stuff, people who, you know, their families weren't separated that long ago. So, so it seems to be, you know, the big thing for them is um, they're willing to fight for their homeland is the first thing above anything else so like this is ukraine we're ukrainians we're gonna fight for our homes we're gonna fight for our nation um like slava ukraini is like the glory to ukraine saying that you probably have heard or seen it written you hear that everywhere like it's the when you call someone like in ukraine you call that like that's the greeting the phone greeting now it's like glory to ukraine it's just this true like the morale is really very high there um, but about the Russian soldiers, you know, it's, I sense that um, it, it may harden, like, and I get the sense that the feelings are hardening towards the Russian soldiers. Like, I think in the beginning of the conflict, um, they were very much willing to be cordial. And, and he, we saw the videos of, like, taking people prisoner, like, call your mother, here's some food. You know, they were trying to be very, uh, you know, very accommodating is what you can considering the conditions of being invaded by russia like if someone surrendered they would you know they would try to take people they would try to talk people into surrendering like i got the sense that they didn't really want to kill russians you know like they may dislike putin 
they may dislike they may be growing to dislike the idea of Russia, but they really did not want to kill the soldiers if they had to. But like now with the shelling that's been happening, I am sensing, you know, they're 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 losing their sympathy for Russian soldiers. Because like I think for the first week or so, from when I was able to figure out and talk to people, the Russians were really trying not to kind of destroy stuff, which was a very un Russian thing to do historically. Um they were really trying not to wreck a lot of stuff. But now that things have really kind of turned into a meat grinder, um, I, I sense the, the mood is shifting on that. Mm -hmm. And what are Ukrainians' feelings, generally speaking, so far as you've been able to uh, ascertain, toward their government and their leadership at this time? Yeah, um, I, I sense that um, they've gotten, they've really rallied around the flag and the government. Like Zelensky is like, yeah, I haven't heard anything bad about him from anyone. Mm -hmm. um, before he was somewhat unpopular, or, or not super unpopular. Um, I think his his approval rating was somewhat low. There was a good bit of criticism about the way he was running things. But then once the war started, they're like, they just like eat up Zelensky. They just really rallied around him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's been it's just as watched them come together and the, the resolve that they've shown has really been tremendous. Hmm. Hmm. Any um, uh, wartime tales? Uh. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, so um, Father Roman told me an interesting, like I never, I didn't go get into combat myself. I was hearing kind of some stories about this. And Father Roman told me a really funny story. Um, that really kind of illustrates like how adaptive Ukrainians have been in this conflict. The the first opening few days of, of the of the invasion, um, you know, again they tore down all the all the village street signs up, all up in the north, all, all basically mostly across the country, but especially like anywhere near combat. So these Russian tanks like come into a village and they're lost and they're like driving around in circles, and like two of them eventually are, like run low on fuel. Um, so they the crews get out and they jump in the other two tanks to um, go find some more fuel and come back. And so they leave these two tanks sitting there like in the village. So the Ukrainians are like, you know, they're like, what are we gonna, okay, what are we gonna do? So they go over there and they get like some paint and they cover up the markings on the tanks and they pull the Russian flags off and stick Ukrainian flags on the tanks. And the two tanks come back like an hour later and they're seeing these tanks parked there with Ukrainian flags and there's no markers on them. So they start shooting their own tanks. <laughs> And then, they, you know, they blew up two of their own tanks and um, they ended up like they, they asked direct, they asked directions, you know, from someone, they had just asked direction from someone where to go. And the guy like actually, they found someone who, who would talk to them and the guy gave them wrong directions. He sent them down this road and there was a bridge there and the bridge would not hold a tank. So they, one of the first tank goes over the bridge and the bridge collapses. They take out a third tank. So there's been like a lot of that, and and that was what Father the story Father Roman told me. One of his soldiers told him that, and that's the sort of like funny things that they're doing, like the way how adaptive they are, of just you know, yeah, we've seen this of them like laying down in the road and like blocking tanks. The Russians are, you know, at least in the beginning they didn't want to run over them, um, and yeah, they've been like super adaptive like that. Like hey, let's let's go troll the Russians, let's go steal their equipment. We've seen the tractors dragging tank off you know they, they leave their tank somewhere and then the tractor pulls up and takes off their vehicle so there's been a lot of that 
really, it's really inspiring to listen here. But that's really like that's the, my most favorite story that I've heard. Is the mm-hmm. let's go mark the tank like it's our tank and like let the Russians shoot their own tanks. So mm-hmm. I had uh, another one. Um, this is a, not a quite so funny, but uh, I, know, I think I sent you some of the photos from the funeral I was at a couple of days ago in Lviv. And again, there there's been tons of air raids in Lviv. And you know, this is these were this was a funeral for four Ukrainian soldiers who killed in the Yovorov strike. They um, came back, and um, you know, they, they brought them back and had their funeral at the Garrison Church in Lviv. It's just it's stunning. It's a gorgeous church. It's it was they started building it in 1610, um, and it's just absolutely magnificent. They've been restoring it for probably 15 years now. Um, but yeah, they had that in there and the build, the building was absolutely packed. The crowd was spilling out on the sidewalk. Um, and it's a Greek Catholic service. It's just, they're, they're singing and it's just, you know, it's, it's a moving moment. Um, the families are in there. They have the crosses with the names and the photos of the soldiers and their, their awards and their medals are on these red velvet pillows standing at the head of each coffin and uh, sprinkling them with holy water. The families are like holding onto the coffin and they're just crying. And, you know, I mean, the, the women are crying and like they're they're but they're, I didn't see anyone lose their dignity. I mean, you could tell their family was heartbroken, but they were maintaining their dignity, even in their grief. And then like halfway through the service, um, the air raid sirens fall, go off. Um, it's this huge loud sirens and you're hearing, I don't know what, what they said, but they're speaking in Ukrainian, but you know what it is. It's like, that's the air raid turn. It starts going off and like no one moves, no one moves. We're in this church and there's probably a thousand people in there packed and like no one makes a move to leave. There's basements all over the entire city. And normally when an air raid turn goes off, people are kind of used to it, but like, still you'll see people doing stuff and then I'll go, okay. And they'll walk down to the basement and wait for 30 minutes until they all clear. But that that day in that service, like, no one moved. No one ran. People stood there and said goodbye to these soldiers. And it was really, it was, um, it was, it was, I'm still, like, really kind of reeling from that. Because I've been there, like, a week at this point. And, you know, it's easy to, to talk about this stuff. Um, when you're separated from it by distance, when you're not there, you're not in the middle of it. But then when you're there and you're with these people and you're hearing their stories and, you know, even the people from the East, you know, they're keeping their dignity and they're, they're keeping stiff upper lips, so to speak. But you can see like the look in their eyes of people are refugees. Their, their homes have been destroyed. They're fleeing war, but you know, just just seeing this, I, I haven't seen anyone like, you know, lose their marbles in any real way. I've seen I've seen people hold themselves with dignity, and I think for me, like that moment of uh, being with those families and being with those soldiers in that church and and just seeing these people hold themselves up like that, it's something that's never going to leave me. I know I'm still like really kind of moved by it. I mean, I, I think I'll be moved by it for the rest of my life i'm still just like i i left and you know i had 
some tears from that. I had to go off and like think for a bit because I'm like, holy shit, I'm in a war zone. There's air raid sirens going off. I'm at a military funeral, a mass funeral for people who, who were killed yesterday at the strike that, you know, you know, and I'm just like, wow, if I've been in America and this had been something that, I, you know, I would note it and I'd pay attention to it. But this is one of the things in America. It's like these things are so far away and you don't think about it because it's just something that happens to someone else on the other side of the planet. Then you were near there and it's like, holy shit, you know, you're anyway, it was uh, I, I'm still really processing a lot of that that yeah. day. So what so how long were was your stay in Ukraine? It was about eight days. Okay. I got there um, Tuesday, and, and it, it again, I got in Tuesday, of, like last week, um, and it took about all day to get in, to get to the border, get across, you know, transport, because again, it's, you can't move very far, and you can't move very quickly in the country. Um, and then we left Wednesday. We actually got, I, I, I met up with some more people. Um, and we took a private car to the border and we had to walk across it again. And we had another ride on the other side. We actually had a private ride back to Warsaw. Um, getting out was, um, probably about, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get, you know, shaken down on the way out, but, uh, it was a crush of people. We actually went to, um, the one that I came in was slam packed with, with I went, came in at, at what's called Medica. Um, it was slam packed with people getting out. So we're like, let's go to a smaller one and leave it because we, we found one that had less of a huge crowd. So it took us probably about two hours, three hours, well, two and a half to three hours to get through. Um, once we got there, uh, there's a little bit of a crush. It wasn't too bad. Um, Lots of people bringing their pets out. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's like folks had really high spirits. There's people there once you get through. I mean, even on, on both sides, there's people there, Red Cross folks. Uh, Jehovah's, like there's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses people there. There's lots of other medical tents and support tents. And everyone's super great. You know, you come in um, and at this one, we came out at, um, I can't remember the booed something i can't remember the name of it It's boot booed something it was like 20 miles north of medica and yeah you get in there and like everyone's super awesome you know the the poles are there and they're like hey welcome you know um they've got all this food and tea and they actually had big boxes of toys for the kids so kids could go get like a stuffed animal or something um it was really great it was it's really up, uplifting to see that the amount of stuff that people are willing to do to help um yeah you know and then we got through and uh, got back to warsaw it's kind of a little it's a little discombobulating to get back in a place that's not at war you know where there's not a curfew there's not soldiers everywhere in the streets hmm. um yeah everyone was really great you know like there's just so many people there with humanitarian aid to help these folks hmm. um you know, people like there was a girl there who had she she was bringing her dog out. You know, where she she had a cat, dog, and she had a chinchilla. She had, like this chest harness, and she we're like, was that like a cat in there? Like, no, look, it's my chinchilla. And she like unzips it, and there's like this little chinchilla sitting in like a little little chest harness in, inside a bag, and it looked cute little guy looking out. And I was like, holy crap, that's you know, it was uh, but no, it, it's it's it was pretty it was pretty uh. 
again, it's like I have a spectrum of emotions from that because you're seeing these people that are having to flee their country, but you know they're they're keeping their spirits up, and the people that are meeting them to greet them, um, you know, folks were walking a pretty good bit to get to the border, and you know, some folks were carrying their dogs, and you know, you'd see like folks would unroll like a mat or something, a padding, and like let their dogs lay down for a nap. It's like the people are like taking care of their pets. And, you know, it's just, uh, it was really, it was really good to see it. You know, it was just to see people, you know, this tragic situation and to see people come together like that. Is there any sense of um, what's going to happen? You know, it's, uh, I've talked, I talked to a lot of people about that, trying to get a feel for what they thought. Um, you know, we, we've seen, again, when you see so much stuff when you're out of the country. Um, there's been a lot of, like, I don't want to dismiss it as propaganda, because I don't think that's the right word to use. But, you know, the Ukrainians have been very, very good at the information operation of, of this conflict. Um, I, and don't get me wrong, they, everything that I've heard and seen from it being in country talking to the people there that witness a lot of the stuff, their spirits are incredibly high. They're willing to fight for every last inch of their country. Um, and they take tremendous pride in the amount of damage they've been able to deal to the Russians. Um, like you just don't, don't really get any sense of defeatism when you, when I talk to a Ukrainian, like there's just none, like they're just going to fight as hard as they can um, and there, there's even even privately alone, you just don't get a sense that they feel like they're going to lose. Um, when you talk to the foreigners, it's a little bit more mixed. Like everyone, again, everyone that I've talked to, um, I've talked to, you know, a lot of, especially like in Poland and stuff like that. And I've talked to people in the country that were foreigners there. It's like fight and aid stuff. I talked to people that are from the Legion. Um like some Georgian Legion guys there and got their sense of what they had seen on the front lines. Um, I think it's one of those things of like the sense I got from the polls that I talked to was, you know, they're standing by, like there's a lot of, um, like there was even a discussion today about this with the Polish guy I was talking. It was kind of interesting. I brought it up. It was like they, 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 there's tons of Ukrainian flags everywhere. They're very much behind Ukrainians. Um, but and they're super anti-Russian in Poland because of the history that they have with Russia. Um, there is some um, some bad blood with Ukrainians. They go back and and the guy today I talked to brought up uh, Stefan uh, Stepan Bandera, who is a U Ukrainian ultranationalist guy, um, and 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 he's actually kind of still like well thought of in Ukraine, um, but. Apparently, there was some, I don't know, ethnic cleansing against Poles at some point. And again, it's Eastern Europe. The situation is super complicated with that. Uh, there's there's a spectrum of political parties in Ukraine um, and that have some historical issues with Poland, and Poland has issues with them. And, you know, the guy said, like, I'm absolutely 110% behind Ukraine in this conflict. Um, once the war is over, you know, I'll start going after them again. It's like I have issues with Ukraine because of, you know, Bandera and other issues. But um, so the, that's the, the interesting thing is like normally polls are kind of it seems like they're 
normally their normal status towards Ukraine is like, eh, you know, we've got issues with these people. But now they're just like, even then they're like, fuck yeah, for the, for the extent of this conflict, we're setting that aside and we're 100% behind them. Um, but one thing I did actually, I did get talking to the polls is they do kind of think Russia still has the upper hand because Russia has so much mass. It's so, so many more people, so much more of a bigger military. And that was what I, the polls, especially when I talked to going in, um, they kind of still thought Russia was going to eventually come out ahead. But it was just going to be a meat grinder. Um, now it seems like a little bit more mixed. Like, I think they're, you know, like it doesn't, I don't, I haven't started, said, heard anyone say yet they think Ukraine's going to march on Moscow or anything, but it seems to be getting more of a stalemate. And we'll see how that goes. Like, we're seeing the Russians get, like, I guess they're getting frustrated and they're getting more brutal towards the civilians. So we'll see how that goes. You know, there's more sanctions coming in every day, it seems like. So it, it's it's kind of really up in the air. It's like uh, the sense is now, I, I, my sense is that the perception of the conflict that the people around the world are seeing in terms of how it's actually going seems to be getting closer to matching the reality on the ground. Um, again, massive respect for the way the Ukrainians are fighting. They're fighting so hard, but they are really outnumbered. You know, they have a much bigger military they're fighting. Um, like it seemed like the first week or so, you may remember, it's like, it seemed like Ukraine was like basically charging into Russia. You know, it, was, it seemed like such a lop- lopsided conflict. And it really kind of is to a point because they are, you know, the, the Ukrainians seem to be fighting very asymmetrically. They're going after, they're just like destroying their supply lines. Um, the soldiers overall, like again, they're fighting, these soldiers are fighting for their home. Um, so they're much more motivated. The, the Russians, a lot of the Russians, even know they're going into Ukraine and they're kind of, they, a lot of them really don't want to fight Ukrainians. So they're not really motivated the same way. I heard a lot are conscripts too that aren't being paid all yeah. that well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're hearing. It's like, there's a lot of conscripts that are being, you know, they're like, wait, I'm in Ukraine. I'm supposed to shoot Ukrainians. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I don't want to be a soldier. I'm not here for that. So you're seeing a lot of that. And a lot of these Ukrainians, they've been training, especially since, um, yeah, this is part of the, um, overconfidence Putin got from like 2014 because most people saw in 2014 he took Crimea he managed to dig into Donbass pretty easily um, because the Ukrainians didn't really have a solid military they didn't really pay a lot of attention to that but then after that we've had the last eight years and it seems like they've really been focused on building up and getting their guys ready to fight and again it's the thing that I was kind of mentioning like you know, Putin has really created the thing he says didn't exist. He's like, there's no Ukrainian identity. And like, oh, well, now there is. He created it, you know, mm-hmm. by attacking them like this. It's like he's really kind of crystallized the Ukrainian identity across the country. Like people that would normally be, because, um, yeah, there was like, you know, for the first, the, the earliest, part, earliest part of the 20th century, um, there were like, we had, there was the Orange Revolution and then the Euro made in them. That's all about the kind of the pro and anti-Russian um, issues kind of being debated in Ukraine. And it was fairly evenly mixed, but it seems like now that's basically over. Like everyone's pro-Ukraine, anti-Russia. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Putin really did that. Like he mm-hmm. actually created the thing that he was trying to, says he's trying to stop. This is 
very Sorry. hypothetical territory, but why do you think yeah. uh, Putin Putin has done this now? Well, you know, um, that's a really good question. Like, this is my, I, I, I think, you know, I haven't seen anyone really discuss it. My suspicion is probably part of that is it's the centennial year of adding, you know, the, of adding half of Ukraine on from the Soviet Union. Um, which was 1922 when they like created like the Soviet Union was officially created in like 1922. That's when they created the USSR. Mm-hmm. And when they were cutting all this up, they like everything basically east of the Dnieper River was added on then. And I I, I haven't seen that cited by anyone. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm just pulling it out of my ass. And it's just a total coincidence. I think that was probably part of it. Um, I think another part of it too is you know i i think that afghanistan was a big part of that what happened in afghanistan you know we saw the afghanistan military basically collapse no one was expect or people saw it happening but it seemed like dc wasn't expecting it and then next thing you know people are like falling off of c-17 wheels uh i think that was probably a big part of it my opinion is as he probably thought that you know America's allies are weak. Ukraine was weak last time I attacked them. Now's the time to go for it. I think that was probably another big factor that played into it. My personal opinion, um, I think the miscalculation there is, ironically, what Putin has been trying to do to Ukraine was, I don't want to morally equivocate it, but I think in terms of pure, um, you know, strategic and like, you know, the dynamics of the situation i think he was he misread it in the sense of what he was trying to do to ukraine was pretty much equivalent to what we try to do to afghanistan and i mean that sense of not again not morally equivocating it but what he's been trying to do over the last couple decades is try to influence ukraine and like support the pro-russian government and get pro-russian puppets basically installed in the ukrainian government and I think when you see, it's not a complete, total um, you know, comparison, but I think the thing about Afghanistan, on top of the fact that it's basically a made-up country, and none of the tribes that live there, you know, their loyalty is not to Afghanistan, it's to their tribe. Um, part of that, too, is, you know, when you read, there's some really interesting stuff that's written about Afghanistan. Um, David Kilcullen's written about it, um, and there's been some other stuff that was written recently about like how the American, like the American forces and the plan for building an Afghanistan government was basically about grafting on these folks that were, you know, you have like Karzai and Ghani who are like massively corrupt people who like are trying to steal money and send it to Abu Dhabi or in Dubai. And, you know, the urban areas of the country, you know, it was these, this group of people that were basically you know, grafted on top of the country, this this foreign westernized culture of, of Afghanistan, it was a very small minority, and it was really only able to be supported by bombing the rural areas. And I think that's really kind of more ironically, I think Putin's plans work, you know, are something more equivalent to that. It's not a natural government that the people would support, and you're trying to force it on the country. And you have to basically occupy the government and bomb the opposition to have any hope of holding it. 
And we saw how that worked out in Afghanistan. And I think that's really, I think Putin got the situation reversed. You know, he's like, yeah, Western allies and Western countries are, are weak. You just need to basically give them a push and they collapse. And I'll just push Ukraine and it'll collapse. And not actually thinking that, you know, wait, I'm actually doing the same thing to Ukraine that they tried in Afghanistan. It's going to end the same way. I mean, there's all these other stuff, interesting um, discussions, too, about autocracy and the fact that people want to lie to the dictator. Like, no one's going to tell the dictator something he doesn't want to hear. So there's the, you know, and that was actually something that um, the USSR was kind of the same way. It was really, it was really kind of interesting to hear about the end of it because everyone got to be lying to each other to a degree that, you know, they couldn't just stop and back out. So they had to keep lying. And that that was supposedly that's one of the reasons the CIA thought that the USSR wasn't going to collapse anytime soon, because they were actually getting the reports that were be, being given to the Politburo. But the, the stuff they were giving to the Politburo was total lies. It was completely made up. So when everything failed, they didn't expect it to happen, you know. So I think that's really another part of it, too, that goes into it is like he was in an echo chamber. You know, you've got a guy that's a dictator who has absolute power over people absolute life and death so i mean do you want to tell the guy hey sorry boss you know this your plan is shit and it's going to fail i don't know i mean the people that kind of get to that position to tell the dictator what he needs to know or not the people that get there by pissing him off so mm -hmm. i don't know that's kind of like a little bit of a high level thought so yeah yeah have you been able to uh grab any stories about what the russian the normal russian uh thinks about this is like you know by word of mouth the normal russians i haven't yeah yeah i, I really Probably haven't been to able that. to um pre it pretty much is i mean they're basically cut off at this point yeah i mean you have the stuff that trickles out and i kind of basically access the same stuff everyone else does yeah. which is you know you you can't like, i mean actually you probably have better insight into that right now because you're an american i don't think rt's banned there like i'm in europe and like they basically like ban and any type of Russian media here. So I can't even really see that. Um, I did. We do hear the stories about the Russian protesters, and I don't know. Like, it's, it's, I, I really can't, I, I haven't heard anything really um, hmm. direct about that, even by word of mouth. So there's, I, uh, I guess, from the American point of view, there's two, basically two levels. Like, what should the normal American uh, gain insight? about the situation from you and then what should American policymakers do? And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on either of those, if you'd like to speak to either of those. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing here, I mean, this is the complicated situation. It's, 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 a, I mean, Russia's in the wrong. I mean, Ukraine absolutely has the right to their, um, you know, their, their borders and to control their nation. Um, I mean, yeah, there, there are these, I mean, I think there's probably, there's the, there's a lot of discussion on, and this is part of this that, that really kind of aggravates me is like, we're getting in this position where we're starting to look at this Russia, Ukraine con or some people are, or I would say most people really are honestly looking at this conflict as a proxy for American domestic neurotic behavior. Like, you know, we want to take these American domestic struggles and graph it onto you know this it's like okay well you know putin's against you know 
gay marriage. So and Ukraine has like a pride parade or something. So they're the bad guys and these are the good and like no, 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 it it, it that doesn't really work. Like you just can't look at it and it's not really that sort of thing. Like this is Eastern Europe. It's like very, very based here. Like even Ukraine is like, you know, like some of the stuff people have been saying about it. I'm like, no, no, this is this is Eastern Europe. It's an extremely religious country. Um, they're like the churches are always packed. Like even when they're not having services, so many people are in there. Um, people walking by the churches, just on the street. You know, they're crossing themselves. Like this is a really traditional country. What we need to do here is keep supporting these people. Send them medical equipment, weapons. I don't think a no-fly zone. I'm, I'm. I think that's probably a little too risky. Like they are fighting really hard. It looks like the the word that I'm hearing, they are kind of moving towards some sort of an agreement. Um, I think the best thing here, because I don't think, I like I, I have an emotional connection to these people now, and I really support their struggle. But I'm not willing to risk thermonuclear war over over Ukraine. Um, my sense is I think Putin is he's old. Like he's about to turn 70. Like he doesn't have much longer left one way or the other. Um, and their economy is so damaged um, with the sanctions. Basically, I think they'll probably be able to come to some sort of an agreement. There's a very good chance they'll be able to come to some sort of agreement um, that will maintain you know, their sovereignty over their country in the Ukraine. Um the NATO, they may have, they'll probably have to give up the NATO EU, or at least agree not to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something 10 or 15 years down the road, they can probably revisit it. Because I don't think Russia is going to invade them again anytime soon after this. I, I don't they think probably, they'll... Russia probably really uh, cemented Ukraine's uh, alliances towards yeah. the West. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, they they have fought so hard and like the country like is moving more towards the West now. Ukrainian national identity seems to be so much stronger. They're moving more towards the West. Um, Putin is on the way out. He's old. He doesn't have much time. I think, like the he's seven, almost seventy now, and I think the Russian life expectancy for a man is like seventy-one or something. So he probably does, five, maybe ten years. He's gone. Ten years to the max. He's gone. You know, it, let Russia like Russia is decaying. Russia wrecked its army in Ukraine. They're not invading next year. Like once this war is over, Russia is not going to invade again for a while. Like they've done so much damage to what they have. Um, they have actually convinced the West to the Europe to start spending more money on their defense. Germany's like Germany starting like, you know, and that was it's so interesting, like how he screwed up, because like before this, Europe didn't want to spend any money on their defense. Now everyone's like, holy shit, let's join NATO. Let's like double our defense spending. So. Like, this was a monumental, catastrophic mistake for Putin. So I think trying to run the board right now when there's 6,000 nuclear weapons on the table is probably a little risky. I think the situation is Russia's basically screwed no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. If, if they can, you know, basically, the, the, the terms they seem to want to have now is basically Ukraine accepts Crimea as Russia now and agrees to you know recognize like the donbass like the the republics they have there the luhansk and donetsk republics which that's basically effectively what already happens 
like those things already exist. It would just basically be recognizing what already exists. NATO didn't want them to join already. So if they say we don't want to join NATO, I mean, they already said NATO already said you're not joining. So basically they would have them. All it would basically be is just, you know, it's and again, you know, it, it just sounds like what they have on the table, what they're debating is just Ukraine to just accept the situation that already exists. So I don't know. Like I, that's the thing is like I think that's probably. I, I think given the situation, um, the realities of the situation, all the competing factors, that's probably a good situation to take. Because, like I said, Putin's on the way out. The Russia ain't invading that country again soon. Like not after this meat grinder they got mm-hmm. put through. I don't even think they could if they wanted to. Yeah. So I mean, that's my feeling on that. It's like. They can probably come to some sort of terms that effectively recognize what already happens and just wait them out because Russia is bleeding out right now, is my opinion. So the uh, both the smart and moral thing to do from the Western or the American standpoint is to support the people and to send humanitarian aid and maybe some weapons to there and just keep them on their feet and then help them rebuild. Uh, because it's yeah, not gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Putin's going to take over the whole country. It doesn't look like that's going to. Yeah, happen. It, it doesn't. I don't think he's going to. Like you know, there was some question in the beginning. Um, I don't think they have what it takes to take the country, even if he wanted to. Um, they may be able to take, depending how the next couple of weeks go, they may be able to take everything east of the, the Dnieper River. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Even that seems to be stalling out. You know, it's, it's just hard to tell, but it just what they're the money they're spending, the, the people they're losing, the equipment they're losing is a little too expensive for them. Like it's it's more than they can really handle. So I think everyone I think, you know, I think at this point, it sounds like everyone's kind of looking for an exit. But, you know, they, they kind of need something that kind of saves space for everyone. And we'll see how that works out. I, I think the best thing, again, like the thing is um, send them aid. We need to send them humanitarian aid, send them medical aid, send, can keep sending them weapons. Um, I, I don't think the no-fly zone is a good idea. Uh, they keep at, like the Ukrainians are asking for it, and I totally understand why. I don't think it's um, a good thing for several reasons. Um, I think, like, they're doing a lot of work. Like, they are doing airstrikes, but they're, apparently there's a lot of artillery and cruise missiles that they're using. Which is not really something a, a no-fly zone works for. But another thing with a no-fly zone is that's effectively a declaration of war. You're saying, Russia, you can't fly here. Well, to do that, you've got to like literally shoot down airplanes if they don't listen to you. But it's more than that, too, because you're. it's not just shooting down airplanes, because Russians have a lot of surface-to-air missiles. So if you're going to fly your planes in to shoot down Russian planes... You're going to have to do something called suppression of enemy air defense, which means you're going to have to start shooting SAM missiles, which means you're shooting Russian troops. So at that point, you're you're in a war. Um, it's I don't see how that's going. I think that's it's a thing that sounds really good on paper because you're like, let's put a no-fly zone over Syria, which is like, like if you're if you're talking about some bombed-out country in the Middle East or in Africa that doesn't really have an air force, maybe has a couple of helicopters or something maybe some prop-driven aircraft, and they don't really have any surface-air missiles or anything, and especially no nuclear weapons, you can do that. I mean, no, they can't do anything about it. 
I mean, Russia has like nuclear weapons and that is like the ultimate Trump card. I mean, what if, like if, if Putin really is like losing his mind or he's about, you know, if there's rumors that he's like, you know, not really all there or he's got, you know, some terminal disease. I mean, do you really want to try to risk that? I mean, I don't know. Like, it seems to me, like I said, the best thing is they can probably get super great terms um, that basically recognize what already exists or the situation that already exists on the ground or existed before the war and then just wait them out. I would not suggest that people come over to join right now to fight. Like, I I had people messaging me. They were crossing the border. Um, One guy, like, he, he... came by himself and i'm like are you with anyone he's like no i'm just by myself um oh are you going to live he's like no i'm on the way to kiev he like already like jumped on a train and was going to kiev you know to fight he's like are you going to go aid someone he's like i don't know anyone i'm going to go fight in kiev i don't know anyone i'm just on a train by myself he's an american i, I don't know what he thought is he just did he think he was just going to get off the train in kiev and they'd hand him a rifle and point him towards the front what you know like yeah, like that's the stuff I've like been hearing from people and messages I've been getting, and like I respect that. I mean, I have, like I respect that motivation and that spirit. I just don't think it was a very. Um, I don't. I don't think that's a very uh, successful plan. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the most well thought out plan. And there's lots of really sketchy people. It's weird. It's like there's just there's tons of sketchy people that are in a war zone. They want to come to like you know the mil- the country that's being invaded. And, you know, I don't know, like people have their weird motivations. You know, I was, I went there, I, I delivered a bunch of medical gear. I tried to do some interviews and reporting on stuff. And, you know, I connected um, some people that I knew there with reporters who were able to interview them and get stories out on that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, hmm. it's a pretty crazy thing, basically, to sum it up. And I, I think a lot of people are going in there with, they're really a really wrong attitude and an attitude that's really kind of out of touch with what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you then? I am actually, uh, I'm flying out the first thing in the morning. I'm going to go home. I'm going to hug my puppy dog when I get home. I've never been away from, I've the longest I've been away from her so far has been 12 hours in a year and a half. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to see her. And one thing we're also doing is um, we're in the process of, of finalizing a nonprofit to start sending armor to these guys. We've already sourced some armor. We've already shipped it. Um, like they're, they should be finishing up the nonprofit literally today or tomorrow. Okay. And we're going to, we've got some people that are offering funds and we're going to source some plates. And again, anyone else who wants to donate, they're welcome to donate. What's it, what's um, it called? I will link we're gonna, uh, the resources in the description. Yeah, it's, it's going to be um, wheatfoxops.com. Okay. Uh, it should be up. Uh, hopefully we'll have everything lined up in a day or two. They're supposed to be meeting the, uh, uh, going to the bank and fin- finishing that, signing the last couple things. And it should be up today, uh, today or tomorrow. And we're going to, we already have some sources of armor and we're just going to get the fundraising. We got, we have to move the funds towards that, get that finished and try to get some stuff shipped over there. Mm-hmm. Any other, um, can you plug any other uh, charities that you know? Uh, um, there's, um, that you've seen? God, what's his name? Chef Andre, the world uh, chef kitchen. Yeah, he is doing a really good stuff. They've got people all around like, they got people in Lviv that are cooking for refugees. 
They've got um, kitchens set up um, all at, at the border exits for refugees to get food. Um, he's doing some really good stuff. Uh, Nancy Rahman interviewed him for her, uh, I think, her reason. Um, so she did some good stuff on him, interviewing him. Um, he's that's another really good charity. So, mm-hmm. Aaron, I'm gonna wrap up the episode. Thank you so much for for speaking about this, and uh, I commend you, and I have so much admiration for you going there and and putting your you know putting yourself in that situation and trying to do good in real time in real life. Thank you, thank you for having me on. It's great to see you again and to chat and explain about what's happening there. Um, Ukrainians are great people, and uh, you know I'm going to try to do what I can to keep helping them. <laughs>